as we continue our study of 1 Samuel today, we find ourselves in chapter 11. Um, just to remind you, last week we looked at chapters 9 and 10, the story of, of how Saul is sort of picked um, to be the king. The, the, the people ask God to give them a king like the nations around them have a king. And so he gave them a king like the nations around them. That was Saul. Now, if you have been around church for a while, if you have studied Scripture, read Scripture at all, you might know that Saul ends up not working out. But where we are in the story, we don't yet know that. And so that's where we are. We're in Saul, excuse me, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 11. I'm going to read together, to, we're going to read together today. I, I'm actually going to read the, the whole chapter. It's only about 15 verses, uh, but if you need to, to sit at some point, I understand that would be okay. But let us at least start together by standing as we read the Word of God together. Nahash, the Ammonite, came up and lead sea, laid siege to Jabesh-Gilead. All the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. Nahash the Ammonite replied, I'll make one with you on this condition, that I gouge out everyone's right eye and humiliate all Israel. Don't do anything to us for seven days, the elders of Jabesh said to him, and let us send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. If no one saves us, we will surrender to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah, Saul's hometown, and told the terms to the people, all wept aloud. Just then Saul was coming in from the field behind his oxen. What's the matter with the people? Why are they weeping? Saul inquired. And they repeated to him the words of the men from Jabesh. When Saul heard these words, the Spirit of God suddenly came powerfully on him. And his anger burned furiously. He took a team of oxen, cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by messengers who said, This is what will be done to the ox of anyone who does not march behind Saul and Samuel. As a result, the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they went out united. Saul counted them at Bezek. There were 300,000 Israelites and 30,000 men from Judah. He told the messengers who had come, tell this to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, deliverance will be yours tomorrow by the time the sun is hot. So the messengers told the men of Jabesh, and they rejoiced. Then the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, tomorrow we will come out and you can do whatever you want to us. The next day Saul organized the troops into three divisions. During the morning watch, they invaded the Ammonite camp and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. There were survivors but they were so scattered that no two of them were left together. Afterward, the people said to Samuel, Who said that Saul should not reign over us? Give us those men so we can kill them. But Saul ordered, No one will be executed this day, for today the Lord has provided deliverance in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and we can renew the kingship there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there in the Lord's presence they made Saul king. They sacrificed fellowship offerings in the Lord's presence, and Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. This is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray. 
Dear Heavenly God, as we gather together today, as we seek to study your word, God, let us, let us see here in this story about kingship. Let us see the reflection of your kingship in it. So God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. This is an interesting story. It's an interesting scenario that plays itself out here. It's not terribly different from what had been going on. If you go back, again, you've got to remember we are, we are in the time period immediately coming out of the Judges. So if you go back and read the book of Judges, you're going to see stories very similar to this. One of the neighboring tribes, the neighboring uh, people groups come up against Israel. They seek to invade and take over. And then there is some deliverance. What was interesting here is we see that they, the, the, the Ammonites come against this, this, this town, the city of Jabesh-Gilead. And what's interesting is when they first show up, notice Jabesh does not start with this idea that they will resist. Jabesh starts with the idea that they are going to capitulate. The first thing that we see the men of Jabesh-Gilead say is, hey, great, love to have you here, so wonderful that you're here. Why don't you make a treaty with us? And it's only then, when they hear the terms of the treaty from the Ammonite king, that they think, well, maybe this isn't such a good deal after all. Of course, the king wants to extract this incredibly high price. He wants everyone's right eye. Now, just then, just like now, most people would have been right-eye dominant. Right? I mean, this is, this, he's, he's seeking not just to, to take anything. He's seeking to take this very important thing. There's a high price that, to be paid, but, but, but Jabesh starts out wanting to capitulate, wanting to make common cause with an enemy of God. That's an important place for us to, to start in this story. And, and then after they hear the terms, they still don't have any confidence that anyone is going to come and rescue them. There's this interesting back and forth between them and the Ammonite king. Where the Ammonite king is, is, is laying siege to the city and they say, well, we want to surrender to you, and, and we may even be willing to pay this price, but, but give us a couple of days to see if anybody comes to our rescue. And the, the crazy thing is, is, the Ammonite king apparently says, okay, sure, we'll do that. Just, just for the record, if you are ever laying siege to a town, and they say, let us ask if anyone will come and help us, don't say yes to that. As we will see, it does not ter work out terribly well for the Ammonites. But, but even then, what, notice how they say it to Nahash. They say, don't do anything to us for seven days and let us send messengers and if no one comes to save us. So, so they even have, they have no confidence that their fellow Israelites are going to come to their aid. This is a clue, something that we've already seen in Judges and in the first part 
of Samuel, the system is not working the way that it's supposed to. There should be no question as to whether the other tribes of Israel are going to come to the rescue of the men of Jabesh-Gilead. But the system has broken down. The system isn't working. It's one of the reasons that people have asked for a king. Because the system hasn't worked. The, the, the men of Israel are not doing the things that they are called on to do. They are not coming to each other's aid. They are not honoring the Lord. They're not doing all of these things. And so really the people have asked for a king because they want somebody to lay down the law and make the system work. That's always the attraction of, of a strong man, right? Of a dictator. This is one of the things that the Romans would do, right? The Romans would appoint, in the period of the Republic, the Romans would appoint a dictator. Someone to come in and dictate what happened in times of emergency so that you could get through the emergency. It's, it's always an attractive proposition. And so the, the word goes out, and it comes, the messengers come to where Saul is, to Gibeah, to Saul's hometown, and Saul hears. But, but notice, Saul has been anointed. He's been picked out in front of everybody as king. And where is he? He's, he hasn't really sort of taken his place as king yet, have they? The people haven't recognized his kingship. And so he's back at home doing what he has always done. He's tending to his father's oxen. He's still in the field. You know, this is interesting. It's going back to, to Rome, right? I mean, there's this, this image of Cincinnatus, this Roman general who was a farmer, but when called upon would leave his farm and serve the republic and then when his time was done, would go back to the farm. It's an image that we have in this country in George Washington. Men of his generation called him the American Cincinnatus. It's why we have a city in Ohio named Cincinnati. There is still an order of Cincinnatus, which is the descendants of the men who served as officers in Washington's staff during the Revolutionary War. This, this image of of the farmer, warrior, dictator, king is common in the ancient world. A man who would rise up when the time was right, when he was needed, from relatively humble condition to lead the people to salvation. When Paul hears what's happened at Jabesh, Gilead, what is happening there, um, really, uh, let us, he, he legitimately engages in a course of action that puts the fear of God into the people. Some of you had maybe fathers or mothers who could put the fear of God into you. This is what Saul actually does. He, he takes these oxen, he, he cuts them apart, he sends them to the, to the corners of the kingdom. This should remind us of the book of Judges where something similar happens. And so the people come together. 
The people come together to save Jabesh Gilead, to save a people who were ready to capitulate to an enemy of God. Saul gets the people together to bring deliverance and salvation to a city whose first instinct when confronted by an enemy of God was to say, sounds good, how about we make a treaty with you? It would be easy to say that the people of Jabesh-Gilead don't deserve to be saved. And yet Saul leads over 300,000 men to deliver and save the city. Saul so thoroughly decimates the Ammonite army that, as we said, that there were some survivors, but they were so scattered, no two of them were together. That's an image, isn't it? These, these solitary survivors of this slaughter running across the land. And then as we come into verse 12, we see finally the people begin to recognize and confirm Saul is king. In fact, you, you see some people, they say, who has said that Saul should not reign over us? Give us those men so that we can kill them. Now, Scripture does not say this, but I know the human condition. I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that maybe some of those who were saying, who was it that said he shouldn't be king, were some of the people who had said he shouldn't be king. Because that's the way it works, doesn't it? But they, they finally claim Saul as king. They finally see Saul as king. What it's taken to confirm Saul's kingship is a defeat of an enemy of God. And not just a, a little defeat, but an overwhelming defeat of an enemy of God. It's what confirms to the people, what proves to the people that Saul is to be their king. You know, as we said, Saul's kingship ends up not working out, but let us never forget that it is God who picks Saul. Now, he picks Saul on the basis of what the people want, not what God wants, right? He gives the people exactly what they want. We should be scared when God gives us what we want. Because a lot of times what we want is not what he wants. And it's not what's best for us. And so he gives, but Saul is used by God. Saul is chosen by God. The defeat of the Ammonite army comes because God is with Saul and his army. And then his... In his confirmation, right, we see this, these people come out and they say, let's, let's kill everybody who was opposed to Saul. And Saul, in this moment of triumph for him, in this moment of the confirmation of his kingship, in the moment of this, this proving to the people that God had chosen him, Saul shows mercy. He says, no, no one is going to die, and no one else, because a whole bunch of people have already died, right? No one else is going to die here today because the Lord has delivered us. 
The Lord has delivered and saved his people. And so they, they go and, and, and to solidify the relationship between the people and the king, to solidify Paul's, Saul's confirmation as king, Samuel offers up a sacrifice. So what we see is that in his triumph and victory over an enemy of God, in his mercy and in this sacrifice, Saul is confirmed in his kingship. So we talked about last week, there are good kings and there are bad kings. There are good kings in Israel and there are bad kings in Israel. And there are kings that are maybe a little bit more complicated than simply good and bad. But we, we do know, spoiler alert, that Saul does not work out as king. In fact, it will only be, it'll only be a, 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 not the next chapter, but the next. It's in chapter 13 that Saul's failure comes out. And that we see that he will not make it as king. But if we're going to say that a king is a good king or a bad king, we have to ask ourselves, by what standard are we judging a good king or a bad king? Well, what is the standard? What is the rule by which we judge? This is, this is always the case. If you want to say something is good and something is bad, you are comparing it to a standard, aren't you? For some of you, in your family, you were the standard. Your siblings heard, why can't you be more like... For some of you, your sibling was the standard, and you heard, why can't you be more like... But there's always a standard, isn't there? Well, the standard and the rule for kingship in the Bible is Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate, perfect king. Now, before Jesus' birth and life, the people of Israel looked, and they looked to David as the standard. They looked to David as the rule. The, the kings were held against David. But David in himself, David is, is just a foreshadowing of the kingship of his line. Jesus. And so in Saul's victory here, and in Saul's confirmation as king, we should look and compare him to Jesus. Because every king in Scripture, and I would offer every king or ruler outside of Scripture, should be held up against the standard, the rule, the plumb line. And when we look at this story of Saul and we begin to compare him to Jesus, what we see is that this story about how Saul comes into his own as king is a foreshadowing of the story of Christ coming into his own as king. Where is Saul? Where is Saul when the when the time comes for Saul to step forward, he's at home. He's, he's coming from, from a not terribly illustrious background. We'll see the, the same thing, as we talked last week, we see the same thing in the story of David. Where is Jesus? Jesus is born in, 
Bethlehem. He's born in the most humble of origins. He's born to a nothing nobody. He's from Nazareth. Does anything good come from Nazareth? When Saul is, is called out to be confirmed as king, he comes from his humble origins. But it is in particular in those last three things that we talked about that we see Saul as this foreimage of Christ. Now I want to be very clear here. Christ is king because Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Christ is king because Christ is Christ. But his kingship can be confirmed to us by what he has done. Christ's kingship is proved, just as Saul was already king before this battle, Christ is already king before his victory. But it's the victory that proves once and for all, for all the world to see that he is the anointed one of God. Now Saul did a fairly easy thing. He walked into a military camp and achieved a military victory. Christ accomplished a victory much harder than that. Christ accomplished victory over sin and death. Paul, Saul defeated an enemy of God, the Ammonites. Christ defeated the enemy of all of us, sin and death. Saul, in his moment of victory, Saul shows mercy. Saul shows up to deliver those for whom deliverance should not come. Saul shows up to deliver those who have already compromised with God's enemy. Christ shows up to save us, even when we have already compromised with God's enemy. And Christ shows us mercy. Every single one of us, before we give our lives to Christ, every single one of us says with our lips, with our hearts, and with our lives, Christ does not deserve to be my king. And it would be so easy to then say, well, he said that Christ should not be king, let us kill him, and yet Christ shows us mercy. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then finally, this, this confirmation, this, this moment of confirmation is completed with Saul with a sacrifice that's offered up to the glory of God. Not only does Christ defeat sin and death, not only does Christ show us mercy, but he does so through the offering of a sacrifice. An offering of the most perfect sacrifice his own body and his own blood. Brothers and sisters, when we go back and we read the Old Testament, it is so easy for us to get caught up in, in the really cool, juicy details of the stories, isn't it? I mean, I mean this is a good story. I mean, this is a, this is a good story about this, this city and this evil king. I mean, this, what, a, what a great movie would this be, Right? I mean, I can even see it now. You know, the Ammonite king himself is missing, missing his right eye. 
And so he wants to humiliate everybody the way he has taking everybody's right. I mean, you can see it now, right? I mean, it'd make a great, epic, big movie battle, wouldn't it? But when we look at it and we understand that this is not just a story, but this is, this is a story in God's Word, a story in the Scripture that points, points us not to a cool story, but points us to Christ. We begin to understand what's happening in all of Scripture. Brothers and sisters, there is a king. We're getting ready. We're getting ready for the worst time ever. Election season. I despise election season. I despise the fact that in this country it never stops. We're still talking about an election that happened three years ago. One of the parties... One of the individuals that's running for president filed to run for president not days after the last election was certified. It never stops. This week, we saw a woman running for House of Representatives in Virginia who has prostituted herself online, herself and her husband. We also saw a sitting member of United States Congress engage in public sex acts with a man who was not her husband in a theater in Colorado. Brothers and sisters, do we, could we get a better quality of leader in this country? But here's the thing, it does not matter. I mean, it matters. But ultimately, we have the perfect king. Ultimately, and I love this country. I am, count myself exceedingly blessed that I was born here and that I get to live here. But at the end of the day, my primary citizenship is not in the United States of America. My primary citizenship is in the kingdom of God, and I have a perfect king. Who confirmed his kingship by the defeat of the ultimate enemy, so that I can live in freedom and eternally with Him, the Son, with God the Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit. I serve a King who not only has defeated my enemy, but who has shown me mercy when I did not deserve it. I serve a King who offered Himself as a perfect sacrifice so that all of this could happen. So at the end of the day, in a little more than a year, we're going to have an election. Somebody's going to become president of this country. Or not. I, I'm, I'm gone, done guessing at this point. And it's going to be important. And it's going to matter. But my hope is not placed in whoever resides at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue or whoever holds a house in Congress or who rests in the governor's mansion or even who occupies the mayor's office across the street. 
My hope is in Christ the King. This morning, if you wish to make a profession of faith, if you wish to, to claim Christ as your Lord, not just confess with your mouth, but believe with your heart to choose to follow Him as He has already confirmed His kingship to you, this is an opportunity to do so. Perhaps you just simply wish to recommit yourself to the King. To thank Him for the mercy that He has shown you. This is an opportunity to do so. Our hymn of invitation is going to be hymn number...